From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. This is, in fact, The Conspiracy Show, the one and only, and my name is Richard Serrett. Would you like to do an iris scan for me to prove it? I can do that if you'd like. Uh, glad you found us. Come on in and uh, hang your cloak on the peg, grab a stool, and warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, Brent Holland, Canadian JFK assassination researcher and composer extraordinaire, is standing by uh, as we prepare to commemorate the, get this, 52 years, the 52nd anniversary of the slaying of the 35th president. And uh, Brent uh, Holland has the distinction of being the one and only Canadian asked to speak at the 50th anniversary of the assassination two years ago in Dallas at Dealey Plaza. This was sort of the officially sanctioned JFK memorial. And uh, he was asked to speak there. And why? Well, uh, because he has friends in high places and he holds the distinction of being one of the last people, if not the last person, to interview JFK's speechwriter, advisor, close friend, Theodore Chaikin Sorensen, Ted Sorensen, who wrote, uh, well, he wrote JFK's speeches, and, and um, uh, we'll, we'll get into that, and how maybe one of those speeches may have been the final nail in the coffin. Um, that's all up and coming. Wow, what a pleasure. Every day above ground is a good day, am I right? It's so good to be here. And I gotta tell you, uh, if there is one thing that these recent spate of cowardly, uh, ISIS murderous rampages have done, is uh, draw me closer to family, closer to God. You know, they just don't get it. They do not get it. Every suicide vest they strap on, every cowardly act that they commit is just making us stronger and more resolute. They're having the exact opposite effect that they're intending. Listen, I have seen the movie. I know how this ends. They lose. They lose. Howard Neal is uh, the anchor of the normally staid and conservative BBC program This Week. And his perspective on ISIS, I happened to see it on YouTube recently, and it is spot on, inspiring, worth repeating, and uh, I hope you'll look it up on YouTube. I actually tweeted Howard Neal's little diatribe. And I hope some scumbag fifth columnist out there is listening. Tim, can you play that for us? This is Howard Neal from BBC This Week on ISIS. Evening all, welcome to This Week, a week in which a bunch of loser jihadists slaughtered 132 innocents in Paris to prove the future belongs to them rather than a civilization like France. Well, I can't say I fancy their chances. France, the country of Descartes, Boulet, Monet, Sartre, Rousseau, Camus, Renoir, Berlioz, Cézanne, Gauguin, Hugo, Voltaire, Matisse, Debussy, Ravel, Sanson, Bizet, Satie, Pasteur, Molière, Frank, Zola, Balzac, Polonc, cutting-edge science, world-class medicine, fearsome security forces, nuclear power, Coco Chanel, Chateau Lafitte, Coco Van, Daft Punk, Zizou Zidane, Juliette Binoche, Liberty, Egality, Fraternity, and Creme Brulee. Versus what? Beheadings, 
crucifixions, amputations, slavery, mass murder, medieval squalor, a death cult barbarity that would shame the Middle Ages. Well, IS or Dash or ISIS or ISIL or whatever name you're going by, I'm sticking with IS, as in Islamist scumbags. I think the outcome is pretty clear to everybody but you. Whatever atrocities you're currently capable of committing, you will lose. In a thousand years' time, Paris, that glorious city of lights, will still be shining bright, as will every other city like it, while you will be as dust, along with a ragbag of fascists, Nazis and Stalinists that have previously dared to challenge democracy and failed. Wow, damn, Iris. I wish I said that. Howard Neal, BBC This Week. Thank you. And uh, again, go on Twitter. Uh, you'll find the YouTube link on my uh, my feed, at Richard Serrett. Retweet it. Send it to your friends. Makes a wonderful Christmas card, I think. Uh, all right. Uh, Tim Spreen is here, my old technical producer. It's old home week here. Uh, back for a short visit, twisting the knobs and dials. Welcome back, Tim. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here, my story producer. Albert is running our Hangout on Air. Uh, don't forget to download the free Conspiracy Show app at iTunes and Google Play. I think we're around, what is it, Albert, nearly 3,000 subscribers now? To the, it's, it's growing, it's getting there, uh, but it's great. You can take the Conspiracy Show with you wherever you go, and I have to tell you, it is, uh, and, and th- again, special thanks to Sharon Forster, uh, who developed this, and Albert, who really spearheaded uh, this as well. It is one of the most powerful, innovative apps of any radio program. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up and verklempt just talking about it, but it is, um, it's, it's really something. So I, I, uh, I encourage you to download that and take the program with you wherever you go. All right, 52 years. Well, I was, uh, I was yet to be born. I was about, uh, what? Maybe just less than two months away from coming into this world um, since the executive branch was taken over <clears throat> in a coup d'etat. Uh, who are the trigger men? Uh, well, that's, I guess, the $64 million question. Uh, but things changed on that day, no question. And uh, the effects are still reverberating even to this day. And it's uh, always a great pleasure around this time of year to welcome a, a good friend of the program. He is a, a multi-award winning music composer. He is, you know, he's just one of these Canada's best kept secrets. Uh, he's a talk show host out of Kingston and a JFK researcher, uh, the author of The Kennedy Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. And uh, we're going to discuss his his insider knowledge gleaned from the last interview he had and one of the last interviews granted by Ted Sorensen, President Kennedy's trusted advisor, speechwriter, friend, shortly before Sorensen died in 2010. But let me just take a few moments to let you in on uh, some of Brent Holland's other accomplishments. Again, he is a multi-award winning music composer for feature films and television. In fact, his score... For the Canadian feature film 21 Brothers, which was about Canadians in the trenches of World War I, is in the Guinness World Book of Records. He has a BFA in music and BFA in theater design, having worked extensively in paranormal radio, uh, sorry, in, in this area. He's the host of the radio program Night Fright Paranormal Radio, 
And he's also known for having the, uh, well, I mentioned the last interview with Sorensen. He's the host of Canada's successful Night Fright radio show. He goes head-to-head with major players in the Kennedy assassination research circles, Mark Lane, Lee Oswald's only legal representative, uh, James D. Eugenio, who's been on the program many times, Lamar Waldron, crime scene experts Sherry Feister, G. Paul Chambers. Um, and his book also includes high-impact first-person witness accounts, such as Dr. Robert McClellan, the Parkland Hospital doctor who tried to save John F. Kennedy's life, the Daily Plaza witnesses James Tagg and Beverly Oliver, uh, Masagi, uh, Abraham Bolden, the first African-American Secret Service, Secret Service agent who was handpicked uh, by JFK. He is really just, you know, he's talked to them all, and he's a, a tremendous resource and a really a treasure trove of information, and we're always delighted to have Brent Holland right here on The Conspiracy Show. Brent, how are you, my friend? Very good, but I'm going to need your address to send you that check for a hundred bucks for saying so many nice things about me. <laughs> oh, oh, Albert, you give him his address because I can use that hundred bucks. Believe me. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me back. It's really good to hear your voice, my friend. Uh, Brent, before we get into the JFK stuff, t- tell me about um, just a, a slight departure here. But I, what is it? In the Guinness World Book of Records, in terms of, the, of uh, your score for 21 Brothers, your, your score is in the Guinness World Book of Records, but what is the actual record? The record is actually for the film itself, which was shot in a single take. And uh, it is quite spectacular, actually, because it tells the story, as you said, of our very own Canadians in the First World War, a regiment based on a true story, a regiment from Kingston, that was uh, in the that were in the trenches during the First World War, and it um, it goes through the mundane life that each one of these people has to go through, but in a single take, and the whole movie lasts for around a hundred and oh a hundred odd minutes or so, and um, the camera never stops moving. Uh, it, it's just an amazing accomplishment. The story is uh, riveting, completely riveting. The characters are. Perfect. Uh, there's composite characters, of course, but it, they're characters everybody can relate to, and uh, it does our guys proud. It really does. I think you'll be quite pleased with it when you see it, for you the folks, especially those of you from Canada. All right. Um, now let's um, let's talk about Ted Sorensen uh, because he is really pivotal, uh, especially when we start to understand. The, the sorts of things he was telling you back in, in 2000 and, and, well, just before he died in 2010. But, you know, we, I, I mentioned he was his speechwriter, Kennedy's speechwriter, his advisor, his friend. But give us a, a glimpse into, into this man. Who was he and what did he mean to Jack Kennedy? Sure, absolutely, without question. But first, can I just give a shout-out to uh, all our French brothers and sisters. Nous sommes avec vous toujours, maintenant. Uh, au futur, nous sommes Canadiens, Français aujourd'hui, nous sommes Américains, nous sommes uh, Allemands. We're all together in this fight, folks, and uh, this is what I'm trying to convey to the French people, that as Richard said, and only Richard could say it the best, uh, I have to commend him on this, we know the outcome of this story, and they're not going to win. We've been through this narrative before, Nazi Germany and elsewhere. It's not going to happen. And that's pretty good segue into Ted Sorensen, because Ted Sorensen told me, uh, Ted Sorensen, folks, was JFK's speechwriter, his closest aide. Uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was Ted 
that JFK trusted with the future of mankind. What he did was he asked Ted to write a letter to Khrushchev to ask Khrushchev to back down. Ted laid out all the peripherals, if you will, all the important aspects of what was taking place during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Ted was integral in putting that paper, a pen to paper and sending it to Khrushchev. Khrushchev took a look at it, agreed to it all, and that was the end of the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. But how close were we in 1962 of October? A hair's Ted width told, from a hair's width. Oh, this is, Brent, I got I to gotta cut in. We're going to take uh, a break here. Uh, but you've set the table nicely. Ted Sorensen, perhaps averted World War III. That's how important he was. Back with more of my conversation with Brent Holland about Ted Sorensen and the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of JFK. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. Do not go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Uh, welcome back. Brent Holland is with us, JFK assassination researcher, and uh, his book, The Kennedy Assassination, from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. But he's also a great Canadian composer uh, and also holds the distinction of having one of the last interviews with JFK's trusted advisor, friend, and speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. You mentioned... Sorensen's role in defusing the Cuban Missile Crisis, perhaps avoiding or averting World War III by writing the letter to Khrushchev, which sort of walked him off the ledge. Uh, but there was another famous um, uh, speech that Sorensen wrote, and some have suggested that this may have been in the nail in the coffin uh, for Kennedy in terms of annoying uh, the military-industrial complex. This was the was the speech he delivered in June, the summer before his assassination in 1963 at the American University in 19... Well, in 1963, the American University in Washington, D.C., and uh, the commencement speech where he talked about seeking a nuclear test ban treaty and so forth. What do you think? Was that the speech that perhaps was the final straw? I agree with you. It was certainly an important part of why he was killed. Uh, Sorensen even mentioned that, the fact that uh, there were so many people in the military-industrial complex that were annoyed with Kennedy. Sorensen even went on to say that that particular speech in particular um, was one that the military-industrial complex was really irate about because he was reaching out for uh, not a Pax Americana, uh, as he says, with use of gunboat diplomacy, but actually listening, trying to create a dialogue, uh, dialogue for before bullets. And uh, Sorensen told me that he felt that there was so many people annoyed with JFK over civil rights, for example, the far right, where it was annoyed, uh, were annoyed with uh, JFK for promoting civil rights and so many other things, that this was just one more... Um, uh, specifically one more uh, nail in the coffin for JFK that they would, could rally around. Kennedy wasn't just killed for one reason. He was killed for a multitude of reasons. The mafia certainly had reason to kill him. Sorensen told me this because Bobby was coming so heavily down upon the mafia, Hoffa and all the rest of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was an undercover agent put in with Carlos Marcello in the... Um, in the 80s, 
but with a radio with a transduce, transducer on it, and we have it on tape that Carlos Marcello uh, openly brags about having the uh, having Kennedy killed, and we have that on tape. Now, why mainstream media has ignored this, I have no idea. And thank goodness for a show like yours, Richard, so that I'm able to tell this story to the folks, and you probably know it as well too. And we can get the truth out there that there was a conspiracy behind the assassination of the president. The ramifications of that, I feel, we're still feeling to this day when I look at um, the resurgence, I feel, of the Cold War with Putin. Without question, uh, I don't think we would have the problems in the Middle East that we are facing right now, and certainly without the extremism and the terrorism that we're, we're facing right now. Because Kennedy's foreign policy, this is another thing that was overlooked, uh, after the assassination, was one of reaching out, was one of understanding, was one of um, offering peace before bullets, if you will, dialogue before bullets. <clears throat> Pardon me. That's why he started the Peace Corps. That's why he was uh, so influential in trying to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons in the Middle East. And um, there were so many things that changed November 26th the 22nd, 1963. Uh, they're just insurmountable. Well, uh, my, my uh, sort of bird's eye view of this whole situation is that, uh, and we've talked about this, but I see this as, a, and I, I think you concur, this was a coup d'etat. And in many ways, it, it almost doesn't matter who was in the White House. Uh, well, that's not entirely true. If whoever was the occupant of the White House, had it been Nixon... Uh, he probably would have played, played ball with the national security state for a time. Uh, but Kennedy was a sacrificial lamb who walked into this not really knowing what he was in for, not knowing that he was surrounded. I think he, once he got there, he realized quickly and too late that he was surrounded by uh, these hawks and this national security state. And so Kennedy, uh, just because of his worldview his tour of Southeast Asia as a senator and so forth, and his, his view of the developing world and America's place in that world, which was diametrically opposed in many ways to sort of the, the goals and aspirations of the developing world, uh, he, was in dia- he was diametrically opposed to the, the, the goals of the national security state of the United States, and so he had to go. He was, as far as they were concerned, a national security threat. Completely. I'm going to pick up on two things that you mentioned. When he first came to office, Alan Dulles, um, I'm in Kingston right now, folks. Just across from Kingston is a place called Watertown, Upper State, New York. That's where Alan Dulles was born, just a very small place, four or 5,000 people still to this day. He became head of the CIA. He put together a proposal to allow anti-Castro Cubans who had fled Castro and Cuba in 1959, he put together a proposal called the Bay of Pigs, where they would go back in, 1,500 of them, and try and take over the island. Hopefully, people on the island, he felt, were so repressed that they would rise up and join in. So he did his own study. The study said definitively that this plan was bound for failure. Alan Dulles hid that from the President of the United States. So Kennedy went in along with the plan to go into the Bay of Pigs 
even though the CIA knew it was bound to fail. Well, once he got into it, Sorensen told me, he said that there was no way he was going to risk putting American military um, support for, the, for these guys because that would just inflame the situation. It was already lost at that point. He had also specifically told the CIA and the military planners that he would not use military support from the U.S. in any sense to help out with this cause at all. Uh, he would train them, but that was the extent of it. So once it started to flounder on the beach and Alan Dulles tried to blackmail JFK, a young JFK, into allowing American air support uh, from Florida, he nixed that right away. He said, all that's going to do is inflame the situation and we may end up in a nuclear war. And certainly a year later, that almost happened. Um, he ended up firing Alan Dulles and several other key people that were in charge of this cover-up. Now, this cover-up only came out years later after JFK had passed away. Sorensen had told me this. But Sorensen was very, very visually enraged the fact that the CIA would lie to their own commander-in-chief. The other uh, aspect I wanted to pick up on was um, you would also mention that Sorensen was integral in the, uh, the, the letter. We were so close to nuclear war that Kennedy... Sorensen told me Kennedy had called his wife to bring the two kids home, ja uh, Jackie, who would have been Jackie, Carolyn, and uh, young John, to the White House because they felt the bombs were going to drop the next day, and they all wanted to be together when they died. That's how close we were. People don't, I mean, I wasn't the, uh, around at the time, but I have, I have talked to people who were, and I, I, when I was shooting my TV show, I was speaking on an entirely different episode. It happened to, 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 it happened to be about the, uh, the death of Marilyn Monroe, but I spoke with uh, someone who was sort of covering that case, and uh, he talked about, because Monroe's connection to the Kennedys, we all know about that, but he, and he talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he was in Los Angeles at the time, and he, he listening on the car radio as these reports were going down, and he he told me at one point he and his wife traveling in the car, they pulled the car over, and they were hugging each other, crying and saying, "I love you, I love you," thinking this is the end, this is the end. That's how close people felt, whether it was actually that close or not. But this is how palpable the fear was among. Uh, people at that time that, you know, the nukes were about to start flying. I mean, I can't even imagine the terror. No, uh, and, and it is terrifying, and we can think that the same thing could happen at any point. If Syria escalates and the United States doesn't want to go along with what Putin's doing to try and combat ISIS, and we can get in a heck of a mess. Uh, just from a Canadian standpoint, John Diefenbaker was um, Prime Minister at the time, and it was renowned that there was kind of a wall between the two, uh, President Kennedy and John Diefenbaker. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, Diefenbaker refused, outright refused, to put the Canadian military even on alert. That's how, that's how pissed off he was with, with Kennedy. He felt Kennedy had got them in this mess, and he didn't want to even try and help to get Kennedy out of the mess. So there, there was that brick wall between the two of them that, um, unfortunately, uh, didn't uh, deceive anywhere, and um, we ended up with Pearson, of course, thank goodness. And Mike Pearson was a staunch ally of NATO and started the, the, um, the NATO um, uh, peacekeeping. So um, 
that was a little bit of history there from the Canadian aspect. All right. Brent Holland is uh, with us as we commemorate the 52nd anniversary of the assassination of uh, JFK here on The Conspiracy Show. And uh, uh, you want to get out and get Brent's book, uh, The Kennedy Assassination, from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. We are coming up on a break. Uh, we'll start the conversation now, continue it after. But I, I want to talk about your final conversation with Ted Sorensen and some of the... the, the uh, the bombs that he dropped concerning his thoughts on the assassination. Now, give us the uh, the timing and the circumstances surrounding this last interview. He was in New York at the time, was he not? He was. I was down there to interview three Nobel Peace laureates, and I had already interviewed Ted for my radio show. And I, I just wanted to meet and greet him. I mean, he was virtually a hero of mine from day one, uh, and given the fact he saved the world with the pen, uh, rather than the sword. So I called up his handlers. Handler said, give me, give me 15 minutes. She called me back. She said, be at his Manhattan apartment tomorrow at 4 o'clock. So I went over there, and I brought my handy cam with me just, just to archive it. It certainly wasn't going to be a documentary or a television show or anything of that nature. Um, it was just for my own personal archive. And honest to goodness, it wasn't for an interview. It was just a meet and greet. I thought he was going to meet me at the door, say, hi, Brent. I was going to say, hi, Mr. Sorensen, and that would have been enough for me. <laughs> and I would have just turned around and gone right back down the elevator. And uh, he lived right beside where John Lennon uh, had lived in Manhattan, just to give you an idea of the area. Oh, in the Dakota itself or beside the Dakota? Just right beside the Dakota. Okay, so right there at uh, on uh, on Central Park West. There you go. So for a kid like me who grew up in a very Irish working class place called Verdun in Montreal, this was out of this world. <laughs> so I was already on cloud nine. We settled into uh, opposite sides of his couch. I put the uh, camera up, and he unloaded. He completely unloaded about the assassination. He unloaded about um, things that went on in the Kennedy administration. For for example, he was. I had asked him, "Did JFK ever piss you off?" He said, "No, never. Uh, JFK was never mad at him. He was never mad at JFK. Although he wished JFK had um, accelerated the civil rights bill before he had passed away." And in the end, what happened, of course, is Johnson took that civil rights bill to Congress, and it finally got passed. All right, Brent, we're that was at... the only complaint. All right, well, we are, we're heading into a break. We'll come back and continue to discuss the uh, the final recorded words of JFK's speech uh, writer, chief advisor, and good friend Ted Sorensen, according to Brent Holland, author of the Kennedy assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. Before we get back to my conversation with JFK researcher, broadcaster, composer, Brent Holland, just some programming notes upcoming on the program, uh, Janet Sitchin, the niece of Zachariah Sitchin, will be along to talk about her new book, The Anunnaki Chronicles, a Zachariah Sitchin reader, which includes never-before-published writings from her uncle. Uh, also, coming up next week, Graham Hancock will be with us, and Debbie Papadakis, our past-life regression uh, therapist, will be here to talk about how to remove blockages. Uh, and always a pleasure to have Debbie on the program. 
And uh, we've got some amazing shows that we're working on uh, for you coming up in December leading into uh, Christmas. So uh, just keep checking the website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and go to the radio page of The Conspiracy Show uh, to keep updated on what's coming up. All right, Brent. Uh, so there you are in uh, Ted Sorensen's apartment, and as you say, he unloads on you unexpectedly about... What um, what his thoughts on the on the Kennedy assassination? Now, what is pro- perhaps the most explosive thing that he told you regarding the events of November the twenty second? Well, what he told me, and it's pretty much almost verbatim. He said, "This year we're going to find out why JFK was killed." Now, I emphasize the word "why" because for me that word. Singular, singularly, indicates that there was some thought behind the assassination. If there was planning behind the assassination, if there was that thought, that means conspiracy. That means it wasn't just one lone nut guy acting on a whim. And that is very scary. Now, when you put that together with the other things he told me about military intelligence, He wouldn't give any names because he didn't know the actual names of the shooters or or the planners or anything like that. But I could tell he he was ready to give it up. And um, I think we're going to find out more as uh, things progress, especially now that Cuba has lowered the barrier. And I think that um, there's going to be more and more information coming out, especially if Castro passes away. Now, I don't think Castro or the Soviet Union, either did Sorensen, by the way, folks, had anything whatsoever to do with the assassination. Um, But certainly, uh, there's some reasons why we're waiting so long, and I think it's, it's national security. One of the things I did ask him, Richard, specifically, and this was several years ago, was about terrorism. And with your permission, I'd like to read just his answer um, from my book, that's okay. Absolutely, yes. This is again; these are the so words I, of Ted Sorensen, the last interview that he gave. I think it's apropos because you know we've been talking about terrorism and various ways to try and combat it. And to me, this makes a lot of sense. I said, sir, if you were in charge right now, how would you deal with the terrorism that's going on in the world and the knife at the United States throat? His answer was, I would try to do all possible to regain the respect that the world had for the United States at the time. John F. Kennedy was president. Nobody was threatening us or attacking us. People loved the president, and they loved this country and its values. I think Obama is the man to regain the world's respect. I think in Afghanistan we will achieve a solution there, not by increasing the number of combat troops we have in the country, but by increasing the number of schools and medical clinics and libraries they have in the country so they can see the United States as it truly is. And I thought I'd just relay that to the folks because I think there are some lessons learned there from a man who virtually saved the world with words and vision and respect and honesty and integrity. integrity. And... For him to say something like that, education, 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 and building infrastructure for people instead of bombing them, I think there could be a solution there. Call me old-fashioned. 
Well, not to get overly political here, but Ted Sorensen died only a short while into Obama's presidency, and I think had he sat back and had a, a full view of what Obama was about, he may have recanted on that. And, and the other thing is, uh, uh, he wasn't necessarily discussing ISIS, which is an entirely different kettle of fish. You know, this isn't the Red Army faction or the Red Army Brigade, you know, the, the scourge of Europe, left-wing terrorist groups. You know, we are talking about Islamo-fascists, and I, I don't know that, you know, building schools or hospitals would change their minds any more than you could change the Nazi mindset. I mean, this is a, it's a software issue. You know, it's just bad ideology, and I don't know that there's any other way of stamping it out than just through force. However, that's another show, another topic, and we'll um, we'll delve in further into uh, the JFK assassination with Brent Holland and his final interview, the final interview, with Ted Sorensen, JFK's speechwriter, advisor, closest friend. We'll do all that in just moments, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. Brent Holland is with us. Brent, tell us how we can listen to and watch your program, Night Fright. Very easy to do. You can uh, get it online. Just uh, do a Google for Night Fright Show or Brent Holland. And all the shows are up on a YouTube channel. You can watch them uh, at your leisure. Uh, just like yours, Richard, they're up on YouTube, and they're all free, so there's no worries there. Excellent. Uh, all right. If you want to, yeah. Go ahead. No, go. Well, I was going to say, if you want to listen live, it's every Tuesday night between the hours of 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time, and that's on a, a online radio station called Revolution Radio. Also around Ontario, some TV Kojiko stations carry the show as well. Excellent. All right, so back to Ted Sorensen. After the assassination, did Jackie Kennedy uh, reach out to him or he to her? And if so, what were those discussions uh, like in terms of, you know, about the assassination itself? Did she ever, you know, suggest what she thought might have happened, or did he suggest anything to her? It's funny because when I asked... He was very open in giving during the whole interview. But as soon as I mentioned the Kennedy family, a barrier came up. And I thought, aha, he's still being protective after all these years. Because I did ask him about Carolyn. I asked him about John, who had just passed away. Uh, he would only speak superficially about Carolyn. He wouldn't really go in depth. When I asked him about Jackie, he wouldn't go anywhere near the assassination in her except for one little poignant story that he told, and I don't mind telling that now, which is just after JFK's death, uh, he was at Hyannisport writing his book, his very first book called Kennedy. And it was Jackie's birthday. Jackie had called him one of the huts that was around there. She was in Hyannisport, too, if he would have supper with her that night because it was her birthday. So Sorensen said, of course he would, he'd be happy to, but he had nothing to give her, and there was no time to go to a store or anything like that. What he did have on him, because he had all his papers doing research for his book, was something that, uh, a piece of paper that JFK had doodled on during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. And he thought, you know what, I'm going to give this to her, because this is historic, um, She'll probably like it because it was from one of the most crucial times in his presidency, and it's personal.
because it's got his own doodling on it. So he gave it to her, and she was just delighted with that. Well, years later, uh, 20, 30 years later, Sorensen was having some kind of event, and he received it back from Jackie, all uh, done up in a frame and just beautiful. So it was a very poignant moment, and I think that's something we need to remember on November 22nd, 2015, is the fact that not only did the world lose a great president and a great man, a family lost its father and a wife lost her husband. There was a human being involved as well. And uh, I know all too well what it's like to grow up with, without a dad. Um, and ever since that time, I've kind of had a, an empathy, if you will, for Carolyn because I know what she's gone through. And it wasn't an easy task. And Ted gave a lot of credit to Jackie in raising the kids to be uh, so successful. That's and very that's very and, true. You know, we, we it tends to be sanitized. It's the same with the assassination of, of Lenin. We we tend to think of you know our own law. Well, we, you know the Beatles will never reunite or JFK. We, what would the world be like with uh, you know would have been like if he had served a second term? And we forget that the grisly details. This was a grisly, bloody murder. And a human being was ripped from this world, and a family was absolutely uh, devastated and uh, torn asunder. And and we we tend to forget that. It it gets sort of sanitized um, through the mists of time. Uh, What did did Sorensen tell you about his views on Oswald, if anything? He thought Oswald was disturbed. He thought um, he wasn't sure if he was involved, but he thought that he could have been because uh, I'm trying to think of the exact, I'll have to paraphrase what he told me, that the military intelligence people uh, certainly had enough reasons to have JFK killed, and they could reach out to disturbed individuals such as Lee Harvey Oswald to do that for him. So for them. So I'm not sure if he thought Oswald was involved at all. Uh, for sure he thought there was a conspiracy, but he never really got into D.B. Plaza. Actually, Richard, uh, God forbid this should ever happen to you, I thought I'd blown the interview with him because I brought up D.B. Plaza. And I uh, innocently asked him, have you ever been to D.B. Plaza? Wow, he did a 180 and he got really angry. Really? You know, that's, he yeah, got he, angry you know, with you. Angry. He got angry with me. He said, that's the worst day of my life. I don't want to discuss it any further. Um, let's leave it of what I've just said. And I said, okay. So I went on to something else. But wow. Uh, yeah, his whole demeanor just changed. Well, that's raw and honest. And, I, you know, one can certainly understand. This was his friend, and he, he lost them that, that that place. I mean, I, if that happened to me, I, I, I'd have to say I wouldn't want to go back there either. Yeah, uh, it was uh, just a nightmare for him. Now, I'm going to arc it over to Bobby's assassination. Both Bobby and Ted Kennedy had told Bobby to wait another four years and run in 1972 and not 1968. They said, somebody's going to kill you, Bobby. Ted Sorensen was upstairs at the Ambassador Hotel the night Bobby was killed, and he was just absolutely devastated. Completely devastated. He couldn't even talk. Wow. Yeah. We. And that's the other thing. You know, when you're in that circle, when you're in the Kennedy circle, and you're sort of along, not for the ride, I guess, but you're 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 there, you're in Daly Plaza, then you're at the Ambassador Hotel, uh, 
I mean, just horror upon horror uh, to be a, to be associated with the Kennedys and to witness that. He also mentioned Dr. King, uh, how excited they were uh, August 28, 1963, when Dr. King gave his I Have a Dream speech just down the street from the Oval Office. And he came over to the Oval Office after and uh, how he was greeted by Kennedy and how warm he was and, and everything else. And then he also mentioned the fact that, you know, once in a century, maybe you'll come up with a leader such as a JFK. And he felt that in the 60s, for that 10-year period or less, actually, we had JFK, we had Dr. King and Bobby. And for the three of those people of that stature to be taken away from any society the way they were, um, it's going to have repercussions, and those repercussions are going to be deep, deep, deep. And I think we can see going back, you know, we ended up with Nixon, once Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Just think of the possibilities if Bobby had been president. Uh, we would not have had the extenuation of the um, Vietnam War. We probably would have continued JFK's. Well, I know we would have, because Ted Sorensen told me that Bobby was going to continue all of Kennedy's um, foreign policy. So he would have reached out, and uh, the whole world would have just been completely, completely different than what we're seeing right now. I think we're still reaping uh, the timeline ripple, if you will, from that assassination in 1963. Was it, in fact, a coup d'etat, and was that the moment when the executive branch was essentially taken away from the American people and and, uh, handed over to whatever we want to call them, the elites, the cabal, the military-industrial complex? I don't know. And I, I'll tell you why. I, I'm not in the, on the camp that President, um, I'm sorry, uh, President Johnson was involved. I'll tell you why, because Sorensen told me Johnson went out of his way to bend arms to keep a lot of Kennedy's team right around him. He wanted to keep Kennedy's team intact, uh, which was Sorensen, Dave Powers, uh, Kenny O'Donnell, McNamara, and Max Taylor. Uh, all these people were handpicked by JFK, even McComb. I was handpicked by JFK, who was the head of the CIA at, the t- at that time. The other reason is Kennedy was killed because of civil rights. It was Johnson that championed the civil rights bill and several other Ken- Kennedy bills, like the um, uh, the poverty bill. I can't remember the proper name for it. Forgive me. Uh, and and another bill, and got them through Congress. So he continued. He took the torch and marched with it. So I don't think Johnson was involved because I don't think the people surrounding Johnson were so far out of the loop because I think they all knew there was something going on. Certainly Bobby did, that they would have stood by and let Johnson take power. Bobby had done his own private investigation using people from the um, Justice Department, and they came back and said it was the mob. The mob had a lot to do with it, but probably anti-Castro-Cubans etc., etc., and a lot of the same names uh, that come up in the Kennedy assassination. It's funny, they come up again in the Bobby assassination, and it's terrifying to think that um, those same names were there. Whether or not the American people lost We the People at that point, I'm not sure. But I don't think Johnson was involved in, in any respect. Military-industrial complex, pulling the strings... 
wouldn't be the first time. Certainly, there, there was templates for the CIA and the military-industrial complex all working together prior to that, uh, performing coups around the world. You know, I think of uh, Iran. What a difference that would have made had there been no coup at that point in 1954 with Mozambique and, and others as well. Right, right. Uh, why was Sorensen so convinced just before he died that the truth was about to come out? Did it have to do with Castro stepping down from power? I think at that point, you know, I examined that, and at that point it looked like Castro was about to pass away. He was very, very ill, and everybody thought he was going to die, and, and that was at that point when, when Sorensen told me that thing. And as I say in my book, um, I think the reason for the cover-up to this day, although I don't know what's happening right now, is because I found out there's still missiles in Cuba. And with Castro being such a loose cannon all of his life, uh, with a fiery, fiery temper, I don't think, and given the hawks that are in the United States, uh, especially on the Republican side, I don't think they wanted to open up that can of worms again. I think they wanted to wait till Castro was gone and a new, perhaps more approachable regime was put into into Cuba. So we'll have to wait and see. Um, but that was validated in, in a piece that was put out, I think it was 2012, April of 2012, by a Mr. Gouda from, uh, I think it was NBC, if I'm not mistaken, or ABC, um, investigative reporter found that there were still missiles in Cuba. The idea was that after the missile crisis, part of the deal was that those missiles, all the missiles were to be removed, and they were to be validated by UN inspectors. Well, Castro never allowed the UN inspectors in, and things kind of quieted down and died down. It looked like Castro was under control, especially by the Soviet Union, just as Kennedy died and passed away, um, it kind of transferred over to Johnson, and Johnson just let it be. That's my own perspective. I could be way off base here, but that's why I think the cover-up to this day for national security reasons. Although it's getting, it's wearing kind of thin, I think, after all these years, I think we're entitled to know what the hell was going on that day. All right, Brent, thank you for spending uh, some time with us, as always. I appreciate it. And uh, what's coming up on uh, on your program? Well, next week we're doing a show on JFK. <laughs> really? I'm shocked <laughs> and amazed. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, nobody does it better, Brent. Nobody does it better. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Richard. God bless you. Likewise, my friend. The Kennedy assassination from the Oval Office to Daly Plaza. Brent Holland. All right, the website for this program is strangeplanet.ca. Register, it's free, it's fast, it's easy. That gets you access to all the past shows, the big archive going back to the summer of 2012. And uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth.